ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The unofficial campaign is on in earnest and I think niceties are going out the window and it's probably going to get a lot worse before the polling day. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Save Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independents. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation in Sydney. And I guess we can say the official road to the referendum is up and running this week, PK. Even though we still don't have the date for the referendum on the voice to parliament, we do have the pamphlet. It's the official pamphlet from the Australian Electoral Commission. It'll go into 12 million letterboxes before we vote. And it contains the official yes and no essays, their arguments for and against The Voice. Now, some people aren't too happy with the content, but we're going to get into all of that when we're joined by James Masola, the National Affairs Correspondent for the SMH and The Age, here in the party room in a little while. But first, BK, we're going to wind back the clock a little, all the way back to last Friday, when something significant, historic even, occurred. The announcement of the new Reserve Bank Governor, Australia's first female Reserve Bank Governor, Michelle Bullock. News, but not really much of a surprise, PK, that the um, current RBA Governor, Philip Lowe, was going to be replaced when his term expires in September? No, as you said it, uh, not exactly a shock, given the government never confirmed that he would get a second term. In fact, in newspapers, strategically placed articles have been (laughs) shared about the other contenders for the Reserve Bank Governor. So yes, we did know that the government was looking to shake up the Reserve Bank. But the real question is, does Michelle Bullock deliver that shake-up? Is this really a shake-up? Now, she's an RBA lifer, right? She started at the Central Bank in 1985. She's held various positions. She was the deputy to Philip Lowe. Uh, Michelle Bullock, as you mentioned, will become the first female boss at the Central Bank. You know, let's pause on that. That's a big deal. This is a key economic institution in our country. And the first woman to hold that role, I think, is a incredible moment for women and uh, women's advances in this country in public policy, particularly in economics. And then the appointment itself, she's been really welcomed from economists, big business, unions, barely anyone saying anything. I can't find much negativity about her appointment. So the government has, Fran, been able to deliver a steady as she goes, but also a new era for the Reserve Bank. And in that sense, I do think they've had some success. Uh, they were keen to to really talk about her leadership skills, leadership being a key thing, because the Reserve Bank will now have to communicate its decisions, hold press conferences. And so communicating is key and leadership is quite key. Here's the Prime Minister. Michelle will be the first female governor since the independent RBA was founded in 1959. After close to four decades of service to the RBA, most recently as the Deputy Governor, Ms Bullock is eminently qualified to lead this national institution. 
Okay, PK, so she's a safe pair of hands with a reform mindset. That's how the Treasurer and the PM are selling her. And as you say, it's been welcome. But it's a tricky time to come into the role. Australia's, you know, still walking an increasingly narrow path uh, to avoid recession. But also the bank, as you say, there's been a recent RBA review, is a reform agenda that has to be implemented. Is it surprising that the Treasurer who makes this appointment appointed someone who, as you say, is an RBA lifer? If we're looking at shaking up the bank... If we're looking at changing the way interest rate decisions in particular are made and we're looking at ways the bank presents itself to the Australian public, is it surprising that they chose someone who's been at the bank for nearly 40 years? Well, it wasn't surprising, but I think it's it's a fair critique or a question about if you really want to shake things up, is this really the answer? I think it's a funny kind of shake-up. Well, yeah, you don't want things to get shaky. You don't want things to get so shaky. We need to keep trust in the bank, It can't right? be radical. It can't be radical. And the, in the Reserve Bank needs to remain incredibly independent. Everyone accepts that. It's a very important part of the way that our economic system operates in this country. But really, we say she comes in at a tricky time. To be honest, I think Philip Lowe did most of the... <laughs> Heavy lifting. Heavy lifting on interest rates. And, and although the government, to be clear, on the record says this is not a punishment for his interest rate decisions, it does come after a long period of interest rate rises. I think the bigger pressure point for her will be around some of the other questions that are being raised by key institutions, uh, key people um, who are part of the economic debate. For instance, the Australian Council of Trade Unions mm-hmm. saying that they have a dual responsibility, not just to deal with tackling inflation, and of course, they, they're going to stick to this two to three percent um, target for inflation, but also full employment. And this idea about where we land on unemployment and the idea that unemployment has to rise to deal with decreasing inflation is a really contentious idea. Mm. And on this one, she has given a key speech where she's talked about uh, this 4.5% unemployment rate. That's been a little bit contentious. I know that the the government says they don't think it's contentious, but clearly unions and others are worried about the rise in unemployment. So watch this space. It goes sort of to what Ian Verinder was talking to us about on the party room a while back when he said, you know, we are in uncharted waters to some degree. These are strange times. And economic orthodoxy, which says that, you know, unemployment going up, lifting up is, is one way to help bring inflation down. It's not unorthodox, what Michelle Bullock said, but of course, trade unions never want to talk about more unemployment. And it goes to the definition of what full employment is. But as we're recording, PK, there's been a surprise release of the unemployment figures for this month. It's dipped again to 3.5%, so an estimated 33,000 extra people gaining jobs last month. This is lower than most economists were tipping. And, you know, as you say, Michelle Bullock has been criticised for her comments that unemployment needs to rise to tame inflation. Well, latest figures have it dipping, so we'll have to wait and see what the impact of this is on the fight against slaying the inflation dragon. We're recording this on a Thursday morning as we do. And at the time of recording, it's just been confirmed that the senior bureaucrat, Catherine Campbell, who oversaw the rollout of that unlawful robo-debt scheme where we've just recently had this Royal Commission, has been suspended without pay from her senior defence position as an advisor to the AUKUS nuclear submarine project. Like, that's a key and very expensive project for our government. So this is, I would say, the first real scalp, wouldn't Mm. you say, as a result of robo-debt. 
Yes, I suspect so. I was happened to be interviewing the Prime Minister when this news came out about a potential suspension. I asked him if it was going to be permanent. He wouldn't buy in definitively, saying, you know, well, I, I can't comment on individual cases. But then he said he does think it will be the case. And basically he says that, you know, the failings with the bureaucracy and the human tragedy caused by robo-debt meant action had to be taken. So the government wanted a scalp. It needs a scalp. As we said before on this podcast, it was unhappy with the sealed section that contained the names of people that the commissioner thought might have further action taken against them. Um, So the government knows that people want some kind of scalp here. It looks like Catherine Campbell is it. Look, let's go to the other huge story this week with, uh, I think, implications for our country, potentially its reputation. The Victorian government suddenly deciding to cancel the Commonwealth Games. (laughs) Sorry, I have to tell you a joke that we're making in Victoria as a Victorian, as a few people have said to me. Oh, did we have the Commonwealth Games? Um, Yes, we we did, boom, boom, 2026. It was only announced 18 months ago. The Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews came out of nowhere with the announcement. He called an emergency press conference. Look, I've made a lot of difficult calls, a lot of very difficult decisions in this job. This is not one of them. Uh, Frankly, six to seven billion dollars for a 12-day sporting event, we are not doing that. That does not represent value for money. That is all cost and no benefit. Okay, well, it, you know, on that figure, it doesn't sound to me like value uh, for money. It's obviously very expensive. But the big question, Fran, is how did the government think it was only going to be $2.5 billion? How did it just suddenly discover that it would be this expensive? What went wrong? And does this do reputational damage to Australia? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of theories around, a lot of conspiracy theories around about whether certainly the Commonwealth Games Australia Association was questioning that figure of 6 to $7 billion. And the opposition in Victoria is demanding the government show its accounting of how it blew out like that. Look, it was a very ambitious plan. It was to have a common Games in not just Melbourne but in Victoria and have you know different sports and different athletes located in different regional centres. Opinion in the community, just from what I've been able to gauge looking on, seems split. Some people think good on Dan Andrews, we don't need to be spending money on sport at the moment, we need it on schools and hospitals. Others saying this is just humiliating and embarrassing. Internationally, PK, this did attract some attention. Uh, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said this is Australia's issue to fix. The Scottish First Minister, Hamza Youssef, expressed his disappointment. And the federal opposition here at home, they didn't miss an opportunity for a free kick too. They're making Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor making this Anthony Albanese's problem if they can. Of course, this shows us the true colour of of Labor governments. Uh, They promise one one thing before an election and do something completely different afterwards. And we've seen that with the Albanese government. I think that's what you call a cheap (laughs) shot. But, you know, Anthony Albanese, he was quick to say, well, it's not his thing to step in here. This is for the states and territories. All the states came out and said, no, we're not going to do it. Um, Is (laughs) it a problem? No one wants the Commonwealth Games. No one wants them. Uh, You know, I was speaking to Andrew Moore from ABC Sport uh, earlier. He was saying, look, they're done. The time is done. As you say, PK, that joke, were we hosting the Commonwealth Games? There doesn't (laughs) seem to be a lot of interest. So I think Anthony Albanese and Dan Andrews, all the signs are they're just going to tough this out. Yeah, I mean, I think there is different responsibility on both of them, can I say? I mean, <laughs> Dan Andrews is responsible because yeah, exactly. he, he made an announcement before an election and really touted what a big thing it was to put, you know, Victoria back on the map kind of thing, right? So for him, I think it is a big deal. And Victorians are going to have to pay essentially some kind of compensation, some payment 
for mm. no longer being in it. Anyway, it was quite a shocking thing. Just came out of nowhere. It's been the story everyone's been talking about all week. It sure has. Hey, shall we bring in our guest now? Let's do it. James Masola is the National Affairs Correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room. Hi, PK. Good to be with you. Hi, James. Great to have you here on the party room. James, the official Voice to Parliament pamphlet was released this week. It contains the official arguments of the yes and the no sides. Now, you've been taking a pretty forensic look at the pamphlet this week, picking apart the statements from both sides. Any surprises in the arguments that are being presented here in these 2,000-word essays? Look, I wouldn't say surprises, Fran. You know, the framing from both sides is what we'd expected and really rests on the arguments they've been making for months. Yes, uh, you know, argues this is about a better future for Indigenous Australians, you know, unity, hope, making a positive difference. It highlights, you know, life expectancy gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, worse rates of disease, a suicide rate that's twice as high as non-Indigenous Australians, and essentially says, look, what we have been doing hasn't been working. This is something that will make positive change. The No campaign really just rests on uncertainty. You could sum it up with that uh, sentence in there, if you don't know, vote no. You know, it talks about riskiness of it, um, the unknowns, that it will be permanent, that it could be divisive. There's a couple of what I, you know, frankly have to say were untruths in there, Fran. One is that it will create different classes of citizen. Another one that stood out to me was that there's no other body like this anywhere in the world. That's not true. There are at least a couple in Scandinavian countries, you know, where there's been treaties and similar sort of bodies put in place. It talks about there being potential for high court challenges. I mean, yeah, that's, that is correct. Yeah. Australia is a country of laws. That is possible. The pamphlet has been published on the Australian Electoral Commission website and it will be sent to 12 million households. It's not been fact-checked though, right? And that's the, it's quite contentious. Not edited, not fact-checked. In fact, there was no stipulated requirement for the messages from either camp to be truthful. Here's the Australian Electoral Commissioner, Tom Rogers, stating that the AEC is essentially just a delivery device. Here he is. 12 or 13 million of these are being put out. We don't own the content of the yes and no cases. They've been provided to us. We really are a postbox with this. So, James, have we seen misinformation breed under these conditions? Are there things being said in those pamphlets that everyone will get which are just plain wrong? Simply put, yes, uh, Patricia, there are untruths, rather, in those pamphlets. This is, as I understand it, standard practice. Uh, George Williams, the constitutional lawyer, had an uh, excellent piece a couple of days ago in the paper about how this is not the first time this has happened. The, the example he highlighted was the 1944 referendum, which looked at post-war powers for the Commonwealth, that that would abolish poverty and unemployment and guarantee there'd be no more depressions. Now, that's probably more in the realm of hyperbole mm. rather than straight-out lie, but, you know, the, the point remains, this is not the first time we've seen pamphlets for uh, either side make these kind of exaggerated claims. Now, the, I guess the difficulty here, PK, is who does the fact-checking? Were there to yeah. be a truth requirement? Who is the arbiter of that? Yeah, well, the fact is legally no one has to do it, but you're saying if they did, who would do it? Because exaggeration is hard to fact-check, really. Not everyone's happy with the other side, that's for sure. Constitutional lawyer Professor Greg Craven, he's very critical of the no case. He said the essay includes a quote from him, and it does, I've had a look at it, where he says the proposal for The Voice was fatally flawed. 
and suggests there would need to be regular judicial interventions. Those are quotes. Now, he is an advocate for The Voice. He's on the yes side. He says his comments have been taken out of context and weaponised by the no camp. The no camp say, well, they're not denying they're weaponising, but they're saying they haven't done anything wrong. It is his quote. He did say it. You know, is there a right or wrong in this case? Or is that just sort of goes to show the tactics that are going to be deployed here? Look, it's a tactical decision. I I think morally it's kind of indefensible, frankly, to be taking him out of context. But yeah, it's it, context, th- isn't it? Exactly. This We're now getting to that pointy part of the campaign. We don't have a final date yet, obviously, but, you know, really the unofficial campaign is on in earnest and I think niceties are going out the window and it's probably going to get a lot worse before the polling day. Okay, so and then there's the bigger discussion about where we're at with the campaign generally, how yes is going, how no is going, and it's been a bit of a flip. It seems that there has been increasing support for the no side. The Prime Minister was really, really uh, quizzed on this um, and in what was really a fiery exchange with 2GB host Ben Fordham, here he is. People will focus uh, when the actual vote is going to be held. People are quite rightly focused on other issues. As we, you, you know as about trends, discussed. though, PM. You followed oh, trends. I've, I've, it's trending down every single time they yes, ask the question. It, it is. It is true that that's the case. But there has been a debate between politicians hmm. uh, in Canberra, uh, with some focus as well from uh, the media on things that uh, this isn't about. There is now an opportunity to have the yes and the no cases published for the first time. Hmm, okay. That went on. It was, you know, quite fiery. Um, That was the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He says it may not be front of mind, but people will focus when needed. Well, is that going to be too late? That's my question to both of you. Greg Craven, the the professor we were just talking about there, he said people are making up their minds now. So to wait till we're sort of six weeks out for an official election campaign kind of environment is going to be too late. James, what do you think? I tend to agree with you, Fran. I don't agree with the PM. It may not be, and our most recent Resolve polling uh, showed this, it may not be the most important single issue for Australians at the moment. Our polling showed that cost of living at 50% was by a mile the most. Just 1% of people said voice was their priority. But I think people are paying attention. I think people do see these stories on the news or read them in the newspapers or whatever. And I think that yes is losing crucial ground now. And I think it's going to be difficult to claw that back. What I'm told is sort of happening internally for the Yes campaign at the moment is a bit of a shift in strategy. People like Noel Pearson are being pushed out more to to be one of the faces of the campaign. Noel, of course, has said some pretty strong stuff about some of the no campaigners, uh, but he also is a great Australian and a very eloquent Australian. And when he keeps that message kind of short, sharp and positive, I think he has the potential to help turn this around. The other thing working for the Yes campaign is they have a lot of money. They also have a potential to have a much stronger ground game than the no campaign as, you know, unions get in, swing in behind this, as the Labor Party institution swings behind it and they do door knocking and phone banking and things like that. But they'd really want to be getting a wriggle on pretty soon, you'd have to say. Mm. Well, we still don't have a date, though. But yes, uh, you know, the, the Yes campaign also has a lot more money to spend, too. So it'll be yep. interesting to see how they use that. Yep.
my mail still is October 14 for the date. Uh, that, that That's the preferred date. It's not obviously official. But if you look, you know, to sort of northern Australia in particular, where the wet season really takes hold by late November, early December, it's going to be very difficult. You know, the PM always says between October and December. I don't see how you do it in the wet season. I know that the AEC is very aware of this. Remote communities up north are very aware of this. I think a week or two after the footy finals is the most likely time. Yeah, well, yeah, you don't mess with the footy. We know that in this country. That's the number one religion. <laughs> now, um, just on an entirely different topic, Nikki Sava, um, who is a columnist with your paper, this morning has reported on the back of intelligence from senior Liberals that a competitor may be lined up in Julian Lisa's Sydney seat in response to him breaking the party line supporting The Voice. And he's not the only Liberal facing a challenge. We know that Deputy Leader Susan Lee faces a real challenge in the pre-selection for her seat of Farah. It's happened before to her. Um, there was an intervention actually from Scott Morrison, you'll recall, to help her in the past. Now she's been avoiding questions around that, saying her focus is on cost of living. But there is obviously something going on inside the Liberal Party. Yeah, look, it's correct that people uh, are working against Lee behind the scenes in her seat of Farah. Liberal Party leader Peter Dutton has asked for early pre-selections to take place so that the party's sort of ready to go to an election whenever it's called. The issue there, and I talked to a few people in the New South Wales division today, is there's a redistribution plan by the AEC that probably won't finish until March or April next year. There'll probably be some pretty significant changes to Sydney seats, not so much to Lee's seat, but there's a swathe of things, you know, potential changes rather, that are going to be made. So Melissa McIntosh, for example, and Lindsay, she might end up with only 30% of her current seat in the new seat of Lindsay, so maybe she wants to shift. She's also obviously in a bit of trouble. I think Lee, uh, I'm told, yes, she's in trouble right now. The pre-selections are delayed until after the redistribution. She'll probably have the numbers. So if it's pushed back, she's probably okay. If early pre-selections go ahead, it may well require the intervention of Peter Dutton in much the same way that Scott Morrison had to intervene last time around. But, but what's going on, James, in Farrah? Why are they so determined to move against her, especially in the wake of the what they learned after that last election loss? The review found that the Liberal Party is not resonating with women and young voters. Susan Lee is their deputy leader. She's the most senior woman in their parliamentary ranks and they're going to move against her? What does that say? It really doesn't. And she's a moderate uh, liberal as well, uh, Fran, isn't she? Like, it, it just doesn't really make much sense at all. Begar's belief, like, uh, that the solution to what happened in 2022 when a swathe of moderates lost their seats to Teals is to replace um, Susan Lee, for example, with a more hardline candidate, a more oh. conservative candidate. It doesn't make sense. No, no, but there was a good line from Julian Lisa who I asked, you know, on breakfast about whether he's um, going to be challenged and he said... Um, there's all these seats that you can run in. <laughs> but the big question is, after the sort of Queensland by-election where they, you know, won that seat again, and ultimately she asks the question, and it's a really reasonable question, is it becoming the opposition for Queensland? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely spot on. You know, Fadden, the seat that the Liberals uh, retained over the weekend, that's not the sort of seat that the Liberal Party needs to win back. I mean, the, the chances of them losing it were always low. Teal seats don't look like that seat. Higgins in Melbourne, which was won by Labor, that, that doesn't look like Fadden at all. The kind of strategy and positioning, if you like, of the Liberal Party at present, opposing the voice, you know, promoting nuclear power, you have to question whether these are positions that are going to win back seats that are, you know, in the must-win column for the Liberal Party to return to government.
Oh, goodness gracious. It doesn't make a lot of uh, sense, does it? <laughs> I don't, look, I don't know how. It doesn't make sense. It's a bit like what we were saying about The Voice, isn't it? You know, you can't leave it to the run-up to the election campaign or the referendum in that case because people are making up their minds now. I know Peter Dutton is saying publicly when asked that, you know, he's keeping the party together and he's doing that. But if that means that you're not learning the lessons or the public doesn't think you're being the Liberal Party that, the public wants them to be, Liberal voters past have want them to be, you can't just suddenly change that perception come an election campaign, can you, just because you've simply got a few more female candidates. Is that going to do it? No, it's not. I mean, the first job, one of the first jobs of any opposition leader after a big loss like the Liberal Party experienced last year is to keep the show together, to keep people united. Dutton keeps making that point. Dutton has done that by and large. The Hume Lochnane Review made a series of recommendations about getting more women into the party as members, about creating a talent pipeline, about getting more women pre-selected. We've seen and heard very little about that. And of course, you don't just want to you know, oh, look, we've we've got binders full of women. We've pre-selected all these women. Can't be token, obviously, but it needs to be structural. And I'm not seeing that that structural work is being done at the moment. Mm. And that where does that leave them in 2025? Yeah, we saw what happened last election when they tried to pull a few out at the last minute. Catherine Deves was one of those, you know. It didn't go well for them, shall we say. James, thank you so much for joining us on The Party Room. Pleasure to chat to you both. Thank you. Thanks, James. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. And it's time for our question time, and it's been a long parliamentary break, so that's good that we get our question in. Uh, Good question. It says, love your show and effort more broadly around the political agenda of our nation. There seems to be a lack of detail and granular focus on the quiet Australians when the CEOs, politicians and Dr Philip Lowe give their public addresses, i.e. it is hard for businesses to plan in a high inflationary environment. Do politicians really care about the Australian community beyond their vote at the ballot box? Mm. Linton, that's a good question. I mean, I would, to use your words, say there's a granular focus on the Australian voter, actually, and their, you know, feelings and responses, because that's their job, is to test the temperature of the nation. Now, if the economy is going badly, they know that who will bear the brunt of this is the electorate, the workforce, people who are, you know, working hard, their wages aren't going up, but at the same time, inflation's high, interest rates are going up. That makes people unhappy. Now, we care about this because the general state of the economy is important for our standard of living, but it's also important for our mood, and that feeds into everything political. For instance, we've seen uh, support for The Voice go down, and some of the feedback coming through some of the polls is that people are angry at the government for focusing on the voice when they think they should be more focused on cost of living. So this is something the Prime Minister's been out and about all week trying to get the message across that, you know, we can chew gum and walk at the same time. And, well, you know, of course the Australian government is focused on cost of living and they they quote all their budget offerings to, you know, for instance, cheaper childcare, cheaper medicine, that kind of thing. So I, 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 don't, I think that they are focused very much on the quiet Australians, as you call them, in as much as they, you know, are focused on how on the mood of the electorate, really. That I, doesn't I, mean they can just give giveaways, though, because they also have to be responsible economic managers. Yeah, I think I think the question is, you know, politicians they're put in one category. There are some politicians that I think, um, and and from all sides of politics, and who are really there for the right reasons, and some I don't think who are perhaps 
based on their own lived experiences. They know how difficult it can mm. be. You know, it's a reasonable question. It's a really tough time and I don't think it's as tough for politicians as it is for a lot of people who are struggling just to meet the costs of, you know, basic things. Well, that's for sure. That is for sure. Well, that's it for The Party Room for this episode. Don't forget to send your questions in. We like getting them. The Party Room at abc.net.au. And we'll pop that email in the show notes so it's nice and easy for you to email through your voice recorded question. It's really easy to do. It is easy. And remember, you can follow us at The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. See you next week, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.